I'm David Hollywood and I'm John Daly and this is the Driving Line F1 podcast. Coming up on this week's show we review Verstappen getting his claws out versus Ocon, we talk about bronze simulation work and how that's going to affect next year's aero regs and we discuss the mystery man from Porsche who's going to be taking up a place at a unknown team. But first here's David with all the news from the Formula One world and the top 10 from the Brazilian GP. Obrigado, John, which is the official language of Brazil. And it's to the Brazilian top 10 that I will bring you to first. The race was won by Lewis Hamilton in the Mercedes. Second was a rather frustrated Max Verstappen in the Red Bull. Kimi Raikkonen was the first Ferrari and he finished in third, rounding out the podium. Fourth was Daniel Ricciardo finishing a race for Red Bull. In fifth was Valtteri Bottas for Mercedes. And in sixth, Sebastian Vettel, underwhelmingly in the Ferrari. Best of the rest and seventh place, Charles Leclerc in the Sauber. And then it was Roman Grosjean for Haas in the second Haas. Kevin Magnussen, they were eighth and ninth. And rounding out the top ten and the final points-paying position was Sergio Perez in the Racing Point Force India. And to our first news story, John, let's talk about Ross Braun. He hasn't been, he hasn't really featured in, in our podcast in a, a number of months, I'm going to guess that. He's, he's, he's not necessarily a headline grabber, a grabber at the best of times, but he's come out with some relatively encouraging news about the 2019 aero regulations. And basically, for those who mightn't be well initiated with it, these new aero regs brought in at the behest of the FIA over, Overtake Study Group that Ross Braun headed up and uh, put together. Uh, basically, they are stripping back some of the complicated aerodynamics on the front wing mostly and the rear wing to a certain degree as well. So it's a tricky one. We, we want the aerodynamicists to be able to express their creativity and create these gorgeous looking cars that have phenomenal downforce. However, you cannot have a great racing series with all the appendages that are on the car. Ross Braun says that the simulator work that they've both done in the FIA and how the teams have independently researched um, these new regs indicate that indeed following cars, therefore possibly overtaking, should be much easier. A compromise well arrived at, John, or a kind of ham-fisted attempt at an emergency sort of sorting out of the situation? What do you think? Well, honestly, right now, I think it's neither of those things because none of us know it's those things. Uh, it's it's all well and good for Ross Braun to be coming out and saying that they're showing promising results. And I do think it's likely that that is fairly honest and frank. But come on, like if it wasn't the case, he'd still be touting that same line. I have a lot of love for Ross Braun, but I'm still going to be sceptical when he comes out and says the things that are commercially beneficial to the FIA and to Formula One in general. Of course, he's going to say those things. But as a as a compromise, as a solution, it's it's not it's not elegant. So I, it's probably a little bit ham fisted, but it's effective. And if it is effective and it gives us better racing, well, the engineers are just going to have to deal with having a little bit less to play with. I think. And you know, actually, right on cue, I'm going to give you the second part of uh, this Ross Brown story. He basically stresses that they genuinely won't know until March. <laughs> so yeah, he was already there. Like it, that's why we love him. Is he? He, he kind. You know, he's not. I, you know, and that's why we trust him to a degree is you always get the sense that he's not trying to sell you something that 
his assertions are based in logic and, and sincerity and for him to follow on with like, yeah, things could be good. But I do want to stress that we will not know until and just like you. So basically, you're as smart as Ross Brown is what we're saying. Yeah, yeah, obviously, of course I am. And and, and that's illustrated with Ross Brown throughout his career. If any of you at home listening have read his book, you will know that he stressed in the 2009 series before the start of the season, he was like, guys, there's a bit of a loophole here. We're going to have a really good car. It's going to give us like twice the aerodynamic performance of any other car in the grid. And most of the teams scoffed at him. And he was just being frank. He was just like, this is going to hurt the sport. And he came out and said that and said, we should probably regulate against it. And no one responded to it. So like, he's earned that trust. And just to count against his trust, I will say that we read it in his book. So, you know, I'm sure Flavio Briatore's book and um, uh, the books of all the other team principals who were attending that particular meeting might counteract such an assertion. But I'll be honest, I am subjective. I kind of just like and trust and support Ross Braun by de facto. What are you going to do? No, so look, we'll see. We'll see what happens with the arrow regulations. I think, you know, when you watch certain races this year and you see how difficult some of the best drivers find it to get close enough to think about overtaking, we're at a point that it's it's too much in the extreme on that particular spectrum. Next up on the agenda is, well, this is a rather interesting story. Porsche's former LMP1 boss, LMP1 being the um, formula basically for the highest end of the World Endurance Championship. And for those who watch Le Mans will know it as the most space age looking of cars that race around that track, all the various different classes and whatnot. And Porsche were a dominant force for many years. And a lot of that is thanks to their former boss, Andreas Seidel. He is now seemingly joining a Formula One team, an unnamed Formula One team. And uh, this guy's got some got some chops. You know, he was a former BMW Sauber Formula One guy. Then he went to be the head of operations at BMW when they entered into DTM. Then Porsche picked him up for their LMP1 series. And uh, as far as I understand, the, the, the head of the Porsche Motorsport Group basically described him as this technical director extraordinary. Basically did a bit of everything. He sat in on Porsche's uh, meetings or rather the meetings about Formula One's future after the Concord Agreement lapses. So the, you know, the 2021 regs and all that, Porsche were sitting in on that to see if they could join the sport. And he would have evaluated that and been the guy to report back to Porsche Motorsport Group and seemingly saying, nah, it's, it's a crock of nonsense. We, we can't be doing this. So then they joined Formula E and he headed up their arrival into Formula E. But now he has been headhunted by an, a mysterious Formula One team. Uh, John... Unless you've been following the World Endurance Championship, you're not going to go. You're not going to know Andreas Seidel. But by all accounts, that's probably not how you say his name. And but by all accounts, he sounds like he could bring something pretty interesting to an unnamed team. Who do we think he's going to? And what do you think of it? Well, you're dead right in that. I had no idea who this man was before this very night, actually, before you told me who he is. But your excitement is rather infectious. I'm quite looking forward to seeing where he's going now. And uh, in terms of where he's going, well, that's an interesting one, considering we're talking about the most political sport that I know in existence. So there's going to be places that you can probably rule out, given that Porsche are a very strong road car competitor. So, you know, the likes of your Mercedes and Ferrari are probably not very happy with that type of association maybe I'm maybe I'm getting that wrong that they'd appreciate the technical ability but it's kind of incongruous isn't it it's like not really the type of home that he is likely to find I think from my fans knowledge of the of the sport I guess so that kind of rules out a good number of teams it kind of puts Red Bull maybe to the fore a little bit maybe puts somewhere like McLaren to the fore 
Well, I was just going to say, and that's got to be the real question here, who needs him? That's, that's the interesting one here. Who needs a technical director extraordinaire? Well, in terms of needing, I think that really stands out, doesn't it? It's like Williams and McLaren. They're the two teams that super need someone who's a technical mastermind and a and a and a, a, an excellent manager. So there, there'd be my first two picks. Do you have a do you have a further inclination? Well, they would be instinctively your two picks, as they would be mine. The only thing I would say is Paddy Lowe is pretty technically um, capable at Williams. Not seeing the evidence of that this season, but you would expect an improvement there just on that basis. And McLaren have been on a relatively aggressive recruitment drive. They did get rid of a technical guy in terms of Tim Goss recently. So I'd say there is a hole to be plugged at McLaren and they would have the budget and resource to attract a big name and the heritage and the history and all of that. So they're a prime candidate. You look through the rest of the field and you think that Sauber with their Alfa Romeo-Ferrari partnership are probably locked down in terms of the flow in and out of that team. They've, they're have they already an established team in Switzerland and you feel like they may be importing some Italian intellectual knowledge there as well at some point. Force India is an interesting possibility with new funding from Lawrence Stroll. Could be... That would be really interesting, actually. You know, talk about a team who deliver above expectation with a paucity of resource, given resource, with someone as technically well-regarded as Andreas Seidel. And, you know, I mean, there's a degree of presumption there that he will be, come into the sport and be really, really effective. But I have a sense, I just have a sense he will be effective. Don't know if you have anything to add to that. Merely that you have a sense of optimism about lots of new entries into the sport. You you do get carried away and a bit excited with these things. So you, you, it's actually infectious. I'm used to it and it's infectious this time. I'm excited for him too. But let's just uh, temper that with the knowledge that you could well be wrong. Let me point you towards Exhibit A and his name is Charles Leclerc. <laughs> Let me point you towards Exhibit B, which is Julian Palmer. The best Formula One pundit ever. Like, <laughs> clearly... I was onto something. I just didn't know what it was at the time. Moving swiftly on from any possible consideration, I may be wrong on frequent occasions. Lewis Hamilton, this is a bit of well, let's do a bit of uh, post-Brazilian Grand Prix housekeeping. Lewis Hamilton may have an engine issue for the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix. This is an enormous news. It is just so, so. It's just a bit too late. Everything is stitched up. He could have no wheels, and it's yeah, you know you're. This Grand Prix should be very funny to watch TV for in terms of the build-up and listening to the various podcasts if you're silly enough to listen to anything else other than the Driving Line F1 podcast. People will be searching for narratives for the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix. There's not too much to play for. Lewis Hamilton's engine having a problem in the Brazilian Grand Prix. Basically, their engine experts were like, oh, we're about to have a failure. And then they messed around with the settings to nurse it to the end. But they're either going to eat possibly a grid penalty or risk a slightly bogey engine. Yeah, it's it's housekeeping, as I say. Other housekeeping, and we're going to get onto it in the race review, review don't worry, very shortly. Uh, Max Verstappen is doing a couple of days of public service for the FIA. Ocon got his penalty in that race for a meeting with Verstappen on the track, but that was a track sporting penalty, nothing followed on elsewise. So yeah, Hamilton and his engine issue, John, and then you can briefly mention what you think of Verstappen's two days of public service. You're dead right in the Hamilton thing. Obviously, if this happened like halfway through the season, it'd be very, very exciting. Kind of interesting to see what Mercedes are going to do here. Are they going to risk having them break down on track, which is only commercially damaging to them? Or are they going to eat it 
before the race, take a penalty, which is slightly commercially damaging, a little bit less so, and then have them perform really well and possibly overtake. I'd rather, as a fan, that they do the, the, the latter, in that they give him the new engine, he takes a grid place penalty, and then we see him drive through the field. Always an exciting thing to see. And then the the Verstappen Ocon thing. I mean, that's uh, we're going to talk about the nuts and bolts of it, I suppose, in the in the race review. But in terms of the fallout, it's a really tricky one, isn't it? Because like, talk to you about this a little bit off air, but I think there's a disparity in how it's maybe dealt with. You know, you look at Vettel's behaviour this year. There's been a couple of times where he's really reprehensibly terrible, swearing at Charlie Whiting over the radio, uh, bashing into Hamilton. The last two seasons, he's not done himself favours in that regard. And he's not really been too harshly punished. The the FIA haven't said, oh, wait, that's like morally reprehensible. We're going to make an example out of you and fix that problem. They have been seen to do something about it while not really doing very much about it. Whereas when it comes to someone like Verstappen, who's kind of been in the limelight a little bit more, but is not going to have a consequence in the outcome of the championship, they feel like they can do something a little bit more heavy-handed and it's not that it's like strongly heavy-handed or whatever it's not like an over-the-top reaction I just think if the shoe is in the other foot with Hamilton or Vettel this wouldn't be done that's an interesting point and it's yeah I think it's a fair assertion I think that you see these things play out in Formula One regularly and and Formula One can get a bad reputation for being a place where for being a hotbed of hypocrisy essentially where you can see these examples made of youngsters because they're not saying Verstappen is callow, but they're not as established as Hamilton or Vettel and therefore not as important to the product necessarily. And because they're not in the championship fight, the damage done to affect them in the next race or to hit them with the penalty afterwards or anything like that, it's just a lot easier to do and to dish out and it may not be merit-based. The one thing I would say is this is life, not necessarily just F1. Think about where you work and the politics in your office. Like... Is that guy ordering you around? <laughs> really, is he there on merit? Did, did he or she earn their right to be there? Or are they playing the game? At the end of the day, it's who plays the game better and manipulates the decision makers best that might do better out of it. And it's it happens in our offices. It happens in other sports. And obviously, considering the amount of money, intellect and capital in all forms that's invested into Formula One, it's sure as heck going to happen in Formula One. It's funny you mention offices in that regard because it kind of hits close to home at the moment. I had a bit of a bit of a spat with one of my colleagues not too long ago that kind of drove home how the how people can make themselves uniquely useful in a particular situation, which kind of makes them invulnerable in in certain regards. So it it certainly is an interesting one. I, just to add, finally, if if Ocon was leering at me, smiling and saying I'm faster, I probably would have punched him. So shoving him is like. We probably got off light. But we're going to review all of that and more coming up in the Brazilian GP review. But and out goes Pipe. My goodness, he's furious. And take that. Oh, my goodness. The Brazilian Grand Prix, John, before we move on to reviewing it, I just want to warn you that your colleagues could be listening to this show. So just bear that in mind when you decide to talk about having issues with colleagues, maybe. You know, you don't want to give them the inside track as to what we talk about behind closed doors <laughs> on mic. He knows. So there's only one place to start and that's quite near the end. Um, we'll get back to the, the how the grid formed and, and there's some interesting stories throughout this weekend. And it was a really good Grand Prix, but 
John, this Grand Prix will be remembered for one incident and one incident only. Of course it will. And for good reason, because it was massively explosive and insane and bizarre. And how often does a driver driving an 18-inch drive into the driver in first? Like, that's absolutely bonkers. So a very brief bit of a story. Verstappen driving out of his skin. It looked like Red Bull was the was the fastest team uh, on the day by, by a good distance, actually. Managed to manoeuvre himself into first very comprehensively, looked like he was out clear. And while, while uh, I want to say going through traffic, he actually wasn't going through traffic. Ocon had taken a pit, fresh tyres, come up behind him, coming past the, the start-finish line, up into that, the Senna S's, that left-hander followed by the, the sharp right into another left. Uh, just on that second turn... Just going through the first turn, you could see Ocon, if you watch the onboard with Verstappen, you see Ocon pulling up to his right, clearly manoeuvring to, to, to try overtake him, which is his right as a, a driver who's faster, who is lapped. You're allowed to unlap yourself, that's no problem. Pulled up alongside him, Verstappen clearly could see him. Like he, If you can see that so clearly on the onboard, Verstappen definitely knew he was there. Going into the second turn, you know, he manoeuvres the car so he leaves him space, but then as he hits the apex, he really closes off that space, expecting that, of course, Ocon isn't going to try overtake me. I'm I'm leading the race. And Ocon's front wheel just caught Verstappen's rear wheel, sending them both spinning in a fray, and Hamilton just zoomed through with about a, a three or a four-second gap back to Hamilton. He zoomed past them, and that was the end of Max Verstappen's challenge. It actually kind of looked like he might have made a challenge thereafter, but uh, I, like quite admirably so, considering the damage he had done to his car. But so let's talk about the nuts and bolts of that. Like, should Ocon have been there? Should was the penalty correct? Should Ocon have even tried this? Should Verstappen have done more? Dave, give us your opinion. Aside from the fact that it decided the race, all the questions just you just asked contribute to the reason why it will be the only reason this race is remembered that you've got a personal rivalry there a personal antipathy I think a lot of people have hinted at in the paddock for the last year two seasons since they've been in the sport together but there's been no confirmation it's been quite smartly managed by all of them but they raised the wheels off each other in European Formula 3 they found each other rarely on the track in Formula One because of the disparity of the cars that they're in. And like you said, here is a very unique situation where Verstappen is the faster driver on the day in the faster car than Ocon. But Ocon, in this one window of opportunity, has uh, taken a pit stop independent of, with no concern of where Verstappen is, running his own race, racing to get the last point paying position or maybe ninth at best, I think it was, Force India were looking for double points finish, essentially. On the fresh tyres, he needs to get past Verstappen. I understand the urgency from Ocon's perspective. Like, he asked permission to do so as well. So let's just put ourselves in Ocon's position here. You don't care about the, the front of the race, ultimately. It's not your concern. You just figured the front of the race is the front of the race. I'm not going to get involved, but I am going to drive past it if I have the faster car because I'm entitled to. Oh, it's Verstappen, and now I want to. I'm going to do it here right now because I was given permission. And a total loss of perspective on what exactly the situation was. If that was a racing incident for position, I think it's quite hard to dish out penalties either way. I think it's, uh, it's, it's but by today's standards of racing, if it was racing for position, it's a racing incident. But you're a lapped car. You People don't go to the Grand Prix to find out who finished 10th. 
you want to find out who's the best driver in the best car. And on that day, it was Verstappen in the Red Bull. And you cannot interfere with that. And your right to lap someone falls by the wayside completely if it is going to mitigate against the results of the the, the race win. Um, so how do you how do you express this? I blame Ocon a lot for the incident and almost blame Force India and Safnauer, their team principal, a little bit for not managing it well enough in terms of the response. Can I overtake him? Yeah, you can't go for it. Maybe, yes, but do it properly. You know, I'd say an order there would have righted him. Mm-hmm. And then Verstappen, I think that Verstappen, even next year, possibly the next Grand Prix after this, but even next year or five years' time, whatever it is, he doesn't have this incident happen to him in the exact same situation that Lewis Hamilton found himself <laughs> getting into these scrapes regularly in his first three or four seasons in Formula One. Can you imagine Lewis Hamilton making, I'm not going to say making that mistake again, it's very unfair on Verstappen, but can you imagine Lewis Hamilton having that outcome from that situation? I've never had more to say in response to anything on the show. There's about 17 things I want to respond to. So first of all, your direct question, no, I think he wouldn't. Second of all, my God, would he get off his feckin' pedestal after the race and telling Verstappen immediately how he shouldn't have done what he did and you should have avoided that incident. Like, stop with this, like greater than thou attitude constantly. It's so patronizing and condescending. It's so frustrating to see God almighty. But ultimately, which is probably making me more angry, is that he's right. I think the way he did it was terrible, but he is right in that give a bit of caution to the wind. There's no reason whatsoever to get involved. I think both Ocon and Verstappen fell victim to the same problem, which was they both got a chip in their shoulder and they wanted to, to get one up on the other guy. And Ocon doesn't get very many chances to do this, as Verstappen was very quick to point out in interviews afterwards. Well, you know, back in our Formula 3 days we competed, we haven't really competed very much because he's been, you know, miles behind me, is it, to paraphrase what he said. So much arrogance floating around about this incident, it's ridiculous. <laughs> uh, yeah, and then, like... You know, in terms of responsibility, just as you were talking about it, we talked about it before the show that I felt like if you're going to apportion blame, you're talking like 85, 90% Ocon's fault and it's probably 10% Verstappen's fault. He could have just gave a bit of space and it wouldn't really hurt him. And as you started going through the explanation for for where blame is apportioned, I was like, wait, actually, just revising that, that discussion on the radio that they had, the team really should have emphasized to him to be a bit more careful further consider the the rivalry that they had and then the team just giving him a not necessarily a carte blanche but just saying yeah go for it of course he's going to go for it then um but also i'd like to point out that he although verstappen didn't need to race him hard ocon didn't need to race him hard either like if you really have that big of a tire differential then what you can do is just make sure you turn earlier in turn one get the better angle on turn two while remaining quite far behind Verstappen and then just getting the drive through turn three and like it's classic uh, say Alonso-esque type racing is you're maneuvering the other car forcing them into other positions and then getting the better drive out of the corner ultimately and getting the job done that way I think that's the most responsible way that he could have got it done we're talking about responsibility with guys who are quite young in the sport and still developing so there's been an aspect of that at play 
But geez, I mean, this is like a really an incident for the season. This is quite an explosive, interesting one that was kind of annoying that it took a race win away from someone who doesn't win very many races and it handed it to the guy who just won everything. <laughs> it's a, kind of a disappointing outcome uh, in the end. Yeah, because there's this great conflict in every Formula One fan's mind and every motorsports fan's mind, I think, that exists in all our heads is that you watch motorsport for the drama you have this conflicted feeling when you see a crash, which is mixed a bit of brilliant with, oh, it's, it's so dangerous to crash these cars at the speed they go at. And ultimately, you do want to see those thrills and spills, I'll put it that way. But as you say, you kind of wish them upon the people that already have success so that you get a, a, a kind of an underdog result or something like that. And finally, on this, John, and briefly, please, if you will, Otmar Safnauer, uh, was doing the Sky Sports pit wall interviewing throughout the race. I'm not a great fan of his interviewing uh, style, how he responds to questions. I think they're quite Peoria and quite uh, bland. And I suppose he's doing what you need to do for your team, your driver and so on. But it just feels like there's a better way of handling that when it happens. So the Ocon and Verstappen incident happens and he is very quickly contacted by, obviously, Sky F1 at Croft, David Croft interviews him. It's like, so was maybe Esteban a bit rash there in what he was doing? And he says, absolutely not. I personally think that's just a very clear illustration of him defending the team no matter what. It Like, the instinctive response is just to make the team look as good as he can and, and he's putting logic aside in a certain sense. And... I think he probably lost a lot of credit in a lot of people's eyes when you immediately come out and say that because I don't think there's... I think there's a very universal feeling among the Formula 1 world that, that that's a bad thing to do. You just can't take the leader of the race out when you're not even in a points-paying position. It's just not acceptable in any fashion. So, yeah, I think he probably did more damage than he realised he was doing by saying that immediately i listened to that as it as it played out as well and i was pretty disgusted with him kind of the equivalent of a footballer taking a dive and uh, you know professionals know why he did it but the fans just don't like it or respect it and and it drives a likable team a little bit further away from you in terms of your of your affection for it i find um but as you highlighted quite rightly, I think from a professional standpoint of view, it's the understandable move to make. Just the manner in which he did it, I feel like I've heard and seen it done better by other team principals, but I can't and won't bring any other examples to mind. So Lewis Hamilton won the race and Mercedes were quietly effective in the race, not disastrously off the pace as they were in Mexico, but they certainly weren't anywhere near their prime in relation to the rest of the field. And the big take-home from this race was the scalded cat-like pace that the Red Bull had, mixing my animalic um, metaphors there. But that Verstappen car, particularly the aggression of his, the movement of the car, and Ricardo looked fast as well. The car just looked visibly faster than the other cars. It really looked bolted to the ground. It was, it was arresting to see two cars that couldn't get onto the second row of the grid, let alone the uh, first row had such a pace advantage in the race. Yeah, so let's dig a little bit deeper into that because that's kind of a hard thing to parse here. That's not... This season has been so unpredictable. It's so hard to call how certain teams are going to do at certain tracks. You kind of have an idea, but then it's exacerbated immensely. 
I did not expect this performance from Red Bull here at all. The, the best I could have expected was a was a wet race in which they had this type of performance, not not a totally dry race. So, you know, where does where does that come from? If we consider that Vettel and Hamilton, I'm not sure if we mentioned that Vettel uh, had a very serious issue with his engine. He had a, a sensor issue in the engine. If you saw at the very start of the race, the formation lap, he actually had difficulty taking off, which they knew was from that moment that there was going to be an issue with the engine. So they had to change the settings and that's why he was quite so slow. Hamilton apparently having an issue then as well. Uh, how much did that flatter Red Bull then? And again, we got to bear in mind that's only one driver from each of the competing teams. We have Raikkonen and, and Bottas. Raikkonen, by the way, drove quite well, really enjoyed seeing him drive quite well. Were Red Bull really genuinely just f- much faster? Was there a bit of mitigation based on the, the two faster drivers being hampered? And, and what does that bode for next year then? Well, I'm going to be very careful about making pronouncements about the competitiveness of the field or saying it's going to be a three-horse race for next year based on anything to do with this particular year. Um I'm not going to be careful because I just have my own convictions and I'm going to say them. You know, I think it's going to be a three-horse race next year. <laughs> <laughs> but I think with with the um, with the Honda deal, it's a bit of a game changer. Also, an interesting piece of news we didn't have in our news feature it was a, it's a nugget that um, Honda have been using a, a kind of an outsourcing uh, technology firm for to supplement their engine design. This IDD or IBB or some acronym anyway, and. Uh, terribly researched I'm very sorry um, they have signed a, an extremely long term deal with this company for specific uh, engine development engines are complicated there's electronics there's turbos there's heat kinetic energy all that I, sorry I can't remember exactly what it was um, so they're very very serious about it and Toro Rosso and Honda have basically been bolting all manner of new things onto that chassis and that engine just for the basis of getting Red Bull a quick start next year. So, yeah, I, th- I think we could have a good championship next season if Ferrari and Mercedes keep up their end of the bargain. Other than that, it is very kind of frustrating to see ultimately three drivers, it's the story of the season as well, three drivers excel and then their three teammates underwhelm for so much of the season. Now, Raikkonen, like you said, has been, he's been quite good. Of the three teammates, he's actually ended up being the best support act out of out of all of them. You're shaking your head. He's much better than Bottas this season. And he's better than Ricardo, who, Ricardo's been terrible. He's He's had a shocking second half of the season that it totally negates a race win and a pole position, two pole positions. Like, um, the points say say it all. He's a distant, distant feature in the championship compared to Bottas and Raikkonen. Yeah, like I can't help but shake my head because I feel that Ricardo has had a lot of thing, things counting against him. Now, I think very recently, the last two or three races, I've been kind of shocked with his poor attitude and poor performance. But I think the car, if you compare, say, Vettel Raikkonen to Verstappen, Ricardo, I think Ricardo's done a good bit better. Raikkonen has a much better car, so you can't just compare them like for like. You have to compare them rel- relatively to their teammate. And I think I think Ricardo's done a, a good job. He did a great job the the first half of the season, first third of the season, and he's been really unfortunate the last like fourteen races or something. Um, yeah, I mean we could debate that till the cows come home, as you say, but 
uh, I think Ricardo did a better job. If we're talking about relativity to teammates, you have to remember that Verstappen basically binned the first Grand, four Grand Prix of this, this season as well. Do you remember? He couldn't stop hitting things mm. uh, all the way up until Monaco. So, yeah. you know, uh, and he had his, his fair share of issues with the Red Bull. Not as many in the second half of the season at all. Not as many DNFs for sure. But... Yeah, I mean, it, the, the qualifying battle as well, it just really counts against the perception of Ricardo. You know, he's he has been as incapable of matching his teammate on pace as Bottas has been this season. Whereas Raikkonen has given Vettel a better run for his money, certainly on the, the raw pace stakes. And I take your point on end of the race. Like, race results, you are getting into different car territory and and DNFs and, and reliability and that, but... On raw head-to-head pace, I think Ricardo's better beaten by Verstappen than Raikkonen was beaten by Vettel. I will then give you the last word on this, and then we can stop it. I'm glad you did, because it's going to be a rather neutral tone that I'm going to adopt here. That's one of the most beautiful things about Formula 1, is that we can debate this as the cows come home. We can pull up all of the stats and compare them all, but ultimately, that's not a fair comparison. The only real comparison you ever have for a driver is the teammate battle, and that's all you ever get year in, year out, and that's a really interesting dynamic in the sport. You can't just put them all in the same car and have them race you gotta you got to hash it out and figure out how how the performances stack up against each other. So if there's anyone at home who really wants to vehemently get involved in this debate, please do send us in your emails to motormediaireland at gmail.com. We'd, we'd be delighted to hear from you. Actually, just an interesting question on Ricardo then, since we're on to the topic. You made an assertion. We both made assertions. We always do it all the time. Um, you made a particular assertion where we were talking about Ricardo's prospects at Renault next season uh, against Nico Hulkenberg. And basically, I was coming down on the side that the race performances will be slightly closer than you, John, would have expect, will expect or do expect at the moment, um, or did expect at the time of recording that particular show, that basically, like I tend to, I've, I give Hulkenberg a lot of credit, and um, you've been giving him increasing levels of credit, and we both always gave Danny Ricardo the world of credit. And I said that I think Hulkenberg will be a bit closer to him on quality than people expect. And I think he'll race well enough, but Ricardo will outrace him over the course of the season. And you were in agreement roughly, but that the gaps on both would be a little bit more in Ricardo's favour than how I was seeing it. Is that still how you'd see it going into next season? Based on this rather interesting nosedive his season has taken. Yeah, I'm glad you added that little uh, caveat at the end. I think this little nosedive is really strongly a product of a man who's jaded. I think he's just sick of being the Red Bull driver and he's gone from being the the upstart, the guy kind of challenging Vettel to almost being on parity, like kind of getting to the point where he's competing properly and then not having the opportunity to and then kind of being the dominant force and now being the the kind of older one on the way out. Mad to call him older on the way out, but... That's the reality of the situation. I think he's going to have a rejuvenation when he joins Renault. It'll be like a fresh team, a fresh start, you know, fresh slate where he can just define who he is and how he performs. I do think, I do think there'll be a significant gap there. I think he's definitely going to outrace Hulkenberg. I think I, I think Hulkenberg's a great qualifier. So. I had a I had a better appreciation of Ricardo's qualifying before he got trounced by Verstappen. To be honest, I thought he was better than this. Uh, so we'll see. How, I don't, I'm not sure. I'll hedge with the qualifying, but I think the race and I, I'd give it a good advantage to Ricardo. I think. 
And that is the really interesting thing. Like we see that revitalization that that thing does happen. Like Hamilton, he certainly hadn't tailed off pace wise comparably at Mer- uh, McLaren. But when he went to Mercedes, he became another beast entirely. And when Vettel left Red Bull, he was beaten and beaten relatively badly by Danny Ricardo. It's just so interest- interesting how these things come full circle and Vettel gets away from that. And I think the Vettel of the last two seasons, well, how would I put it? It's hard to say Vettel's had such an up and down season, but like it wouldn't surprise me if the Vettel coming from Ferrari could go into Red Bull and beat Ricardo around a bit the way Ricardo is now. But you're right, like Ricardo defining himself, new team, new identity, new environment. Um, I expect him to improve, let's put it that way. But it just put, gives you pause for thought in general when someone can, when they fall off like that for the first time in their career, you go, oh, okay, they're not tippity top. You know, ultimately, the very best of the best of the best don't fall off like that against an opponent. Mm. Simple as. So there's that asterisk over him on that basis. And he might be going to a new team and getting a new identity, but he'll still have the same engine. So he may still have the same problems, you know, know, um, emotionally and that type of thing. Anyway, that's not really about the Brazilian Grand Prix at this point, is it? (laughs) Just a six-minute deviation. Um, Yeah, so the race itself, back to the race itself, please. Uh, Red Bull, very impressive Danny Ricardo, decent race, uh, finished the race, so that was great for him, I think, to be fair. And um, Ferrari, so the race the, 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 the race they had themselves, underwhelming, Raikkonen drove very consistently and well, and Vettel seemed to have a sensor issue, so therefore it was limited in the pace that he could produce, which is unfortunate um, that he couldn't get in the mix. But first, I want to get on to the fact that he nearly got a grid penalty. He was Called in at definitely the worst time I've ever seen to be weighed for uh, during qualifying. And I think whatever about the mistakes he makes from the moment he arrives at the weighing bridge to the moment he leaves it, it's not fair to do that to a driver when the envi- the, the environmental conditions are such that you make him weigh the car there, you're, you're, like, you're compromising his session terribly. Yeah, so he turns up at the way scales, way station. You get a red light on the way into the pit lane. Says you have to pull in for a couple of minutes and weigh the car, make sure that the weight of the car with driver in it is of a certain weight, that it's not under the minimum weight. But the problem was that the track was changing drastically. There was rain in the clouds. There was, you needed to get a lap on. You needed to get into the pits, get the tires on and get going again. And these guys were just so stupidly casual about how they brought him in to do this. So firstly, address that if you can, John. And secondly, talk us through the um, kind of number of mistakes and errors and just vetally aggro stuff that happened. Yeah, it, it's such a, that's a great way to describe it. It's such a vetally incident, isn't it? It like characterizes Vettel in the sport for the last two years at this point. Kind of mad stuff that he doesn't really handle correctly, that is kind of sympathetic, but ultimately, what are you doing, mate? Yeah, so first of all, let's just talk about the fact that they Charlie Whiting came out after the fact and he said all teams should anticipate the possibility of this happening. You're just going to have to spend a minute, two minutes weighing the car. That is utter garbage. That is the worst reasoning I've ever heard. I understand that you do have to weigh the cars. Do it bloody afterwards or do it before. You can't. 
you can't be doing it in the middle of the session. It's such an unbelievable disadvantage. And to say that the engineers should just take into account having to pull in for 90 seconds during the middle of an incredibly intense qualifying session, that is BS. That really, really needs to be changed because you're, the, the margins we're talking about, there's nowhere near a margin 90 seconds. That's not what we're dealing with here. We're dealing with margins of like 10, 15 seconds at best. So it really detracts from the sport. I totally, this was, of all of the vettel incidents that we've had over the last three years, this was me being most onside with Vettel that I've ever been. It's so egregious to, to do this type of thing. So let me just describe as it happened. He gets the red light. He pulls into the area where he's supposed to wait. And they have this red cone in front of the way bridge where he's supposed to stop in front of it. He like eagerly bashes through the cone and knocks it about three foot forward someone from the FIA steps forward and tries to pick it up and as he's picking up the cone Vettel is like slowly edging forward such that your man jumps away thinking he's going to get run over and Vettel just bolshily pulls right onto the way bridge without turning off his engine which is the the real point of contention here because that prevented them from getting an accurate reading on the on the scales which I don't really understand why but fair enough I get that there's probably some mitigating circumstances that I don't understand. So let, let, let me revise that for a second. As I was watching it, it really looked like he just put it into neutral, got the way, and then off he went. But apparently he actually managed to turn off the engine and then get going again, which is a very unusual... Like, I mean, the commentators were flabbergasted and were convinced he didn't turn off the engine, but they got the the accurate reading, managed to continue on his way, but destroyed the way bridge... <laughs> for the way he mounted and dismounted uh, the whole thing. But, uh, like, I just want to emphasize that that's, a, like, it's a total farce that they would require drivers to do that in such a tense situation when it's really, that is really detracting from the sport, whether it's someone at the front of the grid or it's a back marker. That's ridiculous. And uh, Ferrari were, you know, they've really animated the season with uh, all the decisions that they've had both on and off the track. And, uh, you know, this is the Weybridge thing was one particular incident that I think Vettel obviously played a huge part in. But there was further incidents on track or one particular incident on track where, where Riva Benna had a nice bit of pantomime, I think, because he knew a camera was on him uh, regarding the two teammates. Pantomime's a good word there, actually. I'm glad you searched for it because it did have that kind of theatrical flourish to it that Riva Benna so often lends himself towards. Kimi Räikkönen was faster than you, Sebastian. Let him pass. The much maligned role of being number two in Ferrari was given its day in the sun so he could finish P3. And he was told to move on past the slowly, uh, slow-moving Sebastian Vettel. And uh, Mauricio Arriva-Bene definitely took the opportunity to highlight to the world that we are fair and we play fair and we want to swap our team around, even though our quote unquote number one driver isn't the guy getting uh, bumped up to, to the next position. And he did this arm switch, this really theatric arm switch, two index fingers pointing one way and then crossing over as in swap them around. You know, all these guys have radios and are sitting beside each other. You just say it to them. No one in the history of the sport has ever done that. So I, you know what, John, I didn't notice it when I saw it. I saw it, but I didn't notice it for what it probably was. So fair play, I'm, I'm pointing that out to me. That's very funny. Um, 
Yeah, so and it was handled really well. Did it on a straight. They didn't lose much time doing it. There was no fussing and fighting on the radio. It was just done. The most dramatic moment took place in the pit wall with the Reeve Bennett, it seems. And yeah, they, they threatened to have a good weekend. They had the right strategy, Ferrari, and they just did not have the underlying pace in Vettel's car with the sensor issue. And Raikkonen was coming back from one position too far to get into the mix for P1 and 2. It looked like that he his race was just one row too far back kind of a thing, I think. And and that was Ferrari's race. It was unremarkable. Red Bull, far more remarkable race. We've remarked far more on it for very obvious reasons. And Lewis Hamilton just doesn't get a look in in terms of our coverage of this particular Grand Prix. You know, he, he did nothing wrong. He drives the car very well. We've said everything there is to be said about the guy who has won five constructors titles with Mercedes now. And they are now the eighth most successful Formula One team in the history of Formula One, having only raced since 2010. And a couple of years, ages and ages and ages and ages before that, they we're not going to talk, you know, whatever. Um... So, yeah, I mean, that's what happens when you win loads of titles in a row, isn't it? Yeah, it's only been done once before, and that was the monopoly of Ferrari, Schumacher, Jean Tot, Ross Braun, etc. Yeah, so that that's, that's you know, fair play to Mercedes. We, it took us this long to mention they won the Constructors' title, John. <laughs> Go on there, you say something nice about them now. Jeez, it is a bit of a faux pas that it took us this long to mention that they were on the constructors. It's such a done deal. Uh, but just to, just to talk about Mercedes briefly in this race in particular, Hamilton had a very understated race. Like it w- he, he drove well, uh, not out of his skin. I think the car was decent, but without the problems on Vettel's car, I think he possibly would have competed with them. The Red Bulls clearly were competing with them. Uh, I just want to say that I think... Bottas in that middle stint really affected the outcome of the race. He really did hold up Verstappen quite a bit. Uh, you know, he did a great job and he has done a, good, a great job several times this season of being that rear gunner of protecting the Mercedes interest. And it's such a, it's such an unglamorous position. It's not really one that's reveled, but it's a really important job in the team. And I think he has done that job really well. So, you know, kudos to Mercedes. Not going to give them too much love because I can't do that. It's not in my person. But uh, they did do a great job all season. Like, an absolutely phenomenal job. That was a bit too understated. They did a good job this season. Yeah, you needed to give it a a bit more of a hyperbole there, to be fair. And I have to dial back on the Bottas stuff. I'm I'm done with him in terms of um, my interest in watching him or anything. I just think he's... He's a lame duck in that Mercedes seat. He's got got it for another year wrongly, but rightly based on his performances earlier in the season. But you can't go through half a season the way he did, or more than half a season the way he did, in my opinion, for the cha- for a championship winning team. Although that being said, the majority of championship winning teams have a second driver that just does exactly that. So I don't know what we do with that. Elsewise, let's just mention the best of the rest. Charles Leclerc, further evidence that he will be very much, uh, very exciting to watch in a Ferrari next season. And, Bursting at the seams, looking forward to that. Uh, elsewhere, double points finish for Haas. Nice bounce back from a disastrous Mexico Grand Prix for them. And uh, Sergio Perez just nipping in with a point there as well. Those are your point scores in the best of the rest competition. And Nico Hulkenberg and Carlos Sainz having a dust-up. Yeah, having quite a dust-up actually. I mean, having very brief contact, but really, really strongly raising each other. Really good to see. Kind of what I expected all season long. And we kind of missed a lot of that actually. <laughs> 
Uh, and then, you know, in, in in terms of Haas, the double points finish, my God, like what's with just not being able to predict anything this season? It's so topsy-turvy, mad results all of the time. That's a great result for them. Not anything I ever expected. So fair play to them. Charles Leclerc, really glad I called it like 10 races ago. Him and Verstappen nailed on future world champions. It's happening. I'm doubling down here. Uh, his performances are just so consistently incredible and it just makes a sham of Ericsson week in, week out. Um, and, you know, <laughs> Perez picking up 10th. It's about par for the course, isn't it? <laughs> I have to defend Marcus Ericsson's honour here. He out-qualified Charles Leclerc this weekend, which we now know is a really impressive thing to do. And his car fell apart before he got to go to the start of the race. And they glued parts of it back on and it fell apart again. And then he couldn't drive it. So he had his best ever starting position in the last race that just happened. So I do feel moved to be like, we've given Ericsson enough grief. He's leaving the sport in his, his best ever historic performance at a circuit. You stick one in him anyway. <laughs> uh but ultimately, yeah, there is a reason why he's leaving, to be fair. And that reason is Charlotte Claire. No, that reason is he's been underwhelming, to be fair. Um, yes, and that was the Brazilian Grand Prix. And we kind of usually start off our podcast uh, review episodes with what did you make of the Grand Prix? John, we didn't do that this time because the old Converse Stappen thing was a bit mad. What did you make of the Grand Prix? Really one of the best Grand Prix of the year, I thought. It was definitely one of the best Brazilian Grand Prix I've ever watched. I do think the Brazilian Grand Prix is prone to not great races when it's dry it's hard to overtake here typically there was a lot of overtaking in this race in the dry which is something that just doesn't often happen um i don't know if it was the best one of the best of the year i mean maybe in the top six or seven um but there's a couple of races that that definitely were better i'm talking ad nauseum for no good reason it was a great race it was a great race dave what do you think well i think it was one of the best grand prix of the year that just said that and you argued it against me now we're going around in circles, so we're going to stop. I think many of us are thinking, thank God that's all we have time for. So from myself, David Hollywood. And from me, John Daly. Our preview of the final Grand Prix of the season. I know, it's crazy. Our preview of the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix will be out shortly. Uh, so stay tuned to your podcast feeds for that. Until then, thank you very much for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this review episode of the Brazilian Grand Prix. And obviously we hope you enjoyed the Brazilian Grand Prix. Thanks for joining us and take care and goodbye. His engine has blown and his chances of winning the Malaysia Grand Prix with it. Oh no, no! He's on the attack, Weber's going to try and go down the outside, it's a breathless for the lead! It's Mark Weber side by side with the Ferrari, he's done it! And out goes Pipe, my goodness, he's furious! And take back, oh my goodness!